0: Hi there, welcome back for another episode of the Mind Your Liberty podcast where we're looking at liberty, what it is, why you should care about it, and how to defend it. Today I'm really excited. I've got a guest in observance of Veterans Day. Uh, this is a special guest I've wanted to have on for a few years. Since I started the podcast, I've been meaning to have this, and this year since I'm doing conversations on the podcast, it worked out. I was He agreed to share his testimony uh, with us and my audience. And so I am excited for you all to get to listen in. And uh, I think it's, I, I certainly learned things. I don't know if he didn't share them the first time around, but I learned stuff. And so this is my brother in Christ, Ron Aguiar, and he's a Vietnam veteran. And uh, more than that, he's my hero, one of my heroes. And uh, he would. He kind of mentored me as a young man. He just invited me to go mountain climbing with him. He was bagging 14ers out in Colorado. He invited me on several of them. He'd take me, uh, have me come up to his mountain chalet up in uh, Conifer, Colorado, and chop firewood and kind of showed me uh, what a, a good example of an older godly man could be, and he's just been faithful over the years, uh, and a, he uh, he's a role model, I'd say. And guys, you need to be if you're a father, you need to be that for your kids. But also, <clears throat> as as we'll talk about at the end of the podcast, at the end of our conversation, I think it's so important to be sure and share that with someone else. Uh, maybe someone doesn't have a dad to be that. I did. I thank God. My dad's another one of my heroes. But uh, young men need need other guys besides their dad to look up to and to see what it's like, to, what what it means to be a man. And uh, Ron was that for me, and and it sounds like he's still doing that type of thing. So I I really appreciate him. I'm honored to have him on the podcast. And uh, so today. Without further ado, oh, Ron did say after we after we finished recording, he mentioned that I might want to put a disclaimer or just a notice out there that there is some intense content in here um, because he was a Vietnam vet and he's sharing some of those memories with us. And, you know, so just be advised that there's potentially disturbing content in here. If you're sensitive to uh, – you know what do you think the vietnam scenario is going to be then then uh, maybe pass this one up also this is a long-winded podcast this is a record breaker for me but i didn't cut anything out i just i thought it was all beneficial i learned i enjoyed listening to him it's an honor for me to have this conversation with him and get to record it and share it with you all so i thought i'd just pass that on um, and Listen to it as you can, and I hope I hope it's beneficial to you, and we'll make a connection into Liberty there towards the end. I think I might have already done that. So without further ado, here's the conversation, um, and I'm not going to do an outro bumper. So we'll see you at the next podcast. All right, so I'm here with my good friend Ron Aguiar, and this is a guy that I've looked up to Pretty much all my life yeah i grew up in the church he attended and i attended as a i was a young man and uh, ron shared his testimony in the youth group when i was in the youth group at uh, this church and i've it made an impact on me and it was just a wonderful story of god's grace and uh, redemption and so we're going to connect that to Liberty as the conversation natural, naturally flows, but I've asked him to start out by uh, sharing his testimony, and so uh, enjoy, and Ron, uh, you're on.
1: Okay. Um, you want me, Andrew, you just want me to go ahead and start talking about myself and uh, <laughs> get in my testimony?
0: Yeah, yeah, so uh, I think that's probably what we should do, yeah.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, first of all, I, I'd like to say, um, you know, it's only by the grace of God that I am here. I, I did not grow up in a Christian family, I was, uh, sorry to say, um, uh, I did, um, uh, didn't know if there was a God or not. Um, I had some doubts about, you know, if I if I knew you were a Christian and we were talking about God, I would say, sure, I believe in God, you know. But yet, if we were, if I knew you were not a Christian, I was talking to you and you asked me if I believe in God, I'd probably say, well, I don't know. I've I've never seen God perform a miracle and I've never had any personal experience with him. So I, I I don't think there is a God, um, uh, but I do remember um, in ninth grade the the Vietnam War uh, was just starting up. We had just started sending advisors to Vietnam, and I I was thinking if I lived in America and had all the freedoms uh, in America that I've been able to enjoy. I think if I was asked to serve my country and go in the military, I think I should be willing to do that because I've been able to reap all the benefits of those who served in the military before me. And I I, I think it would be uh, my obligation to serve my country and say that I'm willing to to go in the military. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, Vietnam was a very unpopular war. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was a 10-year war. And uh, they gave, um, because it was very unpopular, well, I guess it's not really because it was unpopular. But uh, it wasn't like uh, World War II. Two where you know we had a, an aggressor, you know if, if Hitler wasn't stopped, he probably probably tried to conquer the world, and uh, right. we we hadn't been attacked like at Pearl Harbor uh, during Vietnam. We were sending troops over to a far off country that I had never heard of before uh, the war started. Before we started sending advisors, and uh, when I started hearing about it, President Kennedy was still alive, and he was president, and uh, when he was assassinated, I remember I was uh, my sophomore year in high school, and I was in, going to biology class, I just got done with lunch, and I was on my way to biology class, and I heard that President Kennedy was assassinated, and that was a big, a big experience, memorable experience for me, because... Oh, Yeah. I loved America, you know, and and our president had been been killed and uh he had sent advisors to vietnam um and that was the special Forces advisors they went there uh it wasn't where we had sent uh the military
2: as a <clears throat> armed forces to Vietnam, yeah. So I remember the song, the the,
1: the Greenbury, You know the, the song, the Greenbury where they where it came out in 1965, and it was a very popular song. And, um, hmm. They looked like we would. They started up the draft, and uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated, and Lyndon Baines Johnson became president, and he started sending troops to, to Vietnam, and then um, the Special Forces song came out. and um, It really meant a lot to me to hear um, the song about Special Forces, how they, they were willing to serve their country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to serve my country. I didn't want to be a, a draft dodger. There were people had just started going to Canada because they didn't believe in the, the Vietnam War and, you know, the hippie movement was very popular and um, people yeah. started burning their draft cards and started burning the American flag and I, I was totally against that. Even though I was not a Christian, I was totally against that. I mean, I loved America and, um, you know, I knew I had the benefit of of men that had gone to serve our country and had died for our country, and given us the freedoms and the liberty that we have have today, you know. Uh, sure. I wanted to uh, to serve my country. And yet I did not agree with the Vietnam War. I didn't agree with uh, Johnson sending President Johnson sending uh, troops to a far off country that we had never heard of before and fighting a, a war for. <laughs> For somebody who we we had never known or never even knew existed. Um, yeah, but the 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 big thing, the idea that went, went around was the the domino theory. The domino theory uh, was, you know, we we didn't believe in communism in, in Southeast Asia. If we didn't stop the communism in in Vietnam. Then it'd be like Donamos, The other south southeast Asia countries would would fall like dominoes. You know, Laos and Cambodia. And sure. Those other countries would would become communist. And uh, you know, later on, those countries never did. Well, I, I, I guess uh, Cambodia is communist today, but it wasn't. Where once Vietnam fall and the other countries would fall. Sure. Never never did happen to that. You know, of course, the
0: different turn of events for them.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, the Korean War was where uh, we were fighting against uh, North Korea. And then the Chinese got involved, who were definitely communists. Sure. And so they also when i graduated from high school i i thought i would like to go to college like the opportunity to be able to go to college and they gave a draft deferment for, for students uh, you could be come to us if you if you went to college um, as long as you were in college actively pursuing a degree you couldn't be be drafted so the draft was on and a lot of people my age were getting drafted
0: (laughs) a lot of people suddenly went to college
1: yes that's right um my stepfather was a a world war ii veteran and he had multiple sclerosis so he was totally disabled and i was able to go on the, the gi bill for a year so i got a year of college through him oh wow Excuse me. So I went to college and and I went to, I was living in Bemidji, Minnesota, Minnesota, up in northern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was my hometown. And my mom had moved to Minneapolis. Actually, she moved to St. Paul, the Twin Cities. And uh, Bemidji was like 250 miles north of that. And that's where I, I. Grew up in junior high and I think fifth and sixth grade. That's and your hometown,
0: Bemidji, Minnesota. Yes. Huh. I did not know that. You know my uh, there's a guy that got called to be a pastor in Bemidji,
1: Anymore? Minnesota. Yes, uh, Chuck. Chuck Nicholson. Yes. <laughs> uh, Brother Nicholson's uh, son. Yeah, and, Bob Nicholson's son, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> uh, we stopped there and went to church the last time I was in Minnesota. We attended his church. Oh, okay, and gotcha. So that's that was my where I where I grew up, and then uh, I did graduate from Saint Paul Central High School
2: um,
1: in nineteen sixty six my I felt like my hometown was really uh, I knew everybody in town was small town 10,000 people oh wow and I had a lot of high school friends and my had a lot of relatives that lived there and so I decided to go to Bemidji State College and uh I did and I was able to get the GI Bill the only problem was that my best friends lived there also and uh I was not the best students. And so after the first semester, I had a grade point average of 0.96. <laughs> so I was oh, man. definitely a D-minus average. I think I, I had all flunking uh, class. I was flunking all the classes except for one class, which was a history class. I got a C in that. And um, so they asked me not to... Um, come back the next semester. In other words, I was put on probation. I had to stay uh-huh. out a semester um, and then I could come back. Uh, actually, there were quarters. They were not called semesters. They were called quarters, so I, I stayed out a quarter <clears throat> and then I went back into college again and uh, the second quarter, I did do better. I did uh get a D average, but the D average was not well enough to stay in college and so I knew I was gonna be drafted and I really didn't want to go to Vietnam. I didn't believe in, in the Vietnam War just sending men over there to fight for a country I'd never heard heard of so right. Um I started thinking about it and finally uh, Friday the 13th of 1967 I decided I was going to join and um, I joined the, the United States Army and to join you, you enlisted for three years if I was going to be drafted I would only be for two years but I would go to Vietnam Yeah if I was drafted and uh so I went ahead and joined for three years, and I ended up going to Vietnam. Anyway, so um, wasn't too smart of a thing, you know. <laughs> most people were going to Vietnam; that was the main place they were sent. And when I went to the recruiter's office, um, he asked me what I wanted to would like to get into, what, you know, and I wanted wanted to be, and I told him, ah. Well, I think I would like to um, to be a cook. I have worked in restaurants my mom was a uh she worked in a restaurant as a cook and she worked for a chef uh, in this it was a nice restaurant and uh, she she worked for the chef and I was uh, a salad boy and I would make the salads cut up the carrots, no lettuce and all that kind of stuff for the salads. Uh-huh. I really liked that job and I thought I would like to be a uh, be a cook. Um so the recruiter said, Well that's no problem, you know, I can let me go get the paperwork and and we can sign you up today. I said, okay, so then he left and I was sitting there in his office and I was looking at the posters on the wall and I seen these posters of these guys jumping out of airplanes. Uh, paratroopers, you know, they were jumping out. And then I seen another picture where these guys that camouflage on their face and they're in a life raft and they had their rifles, you know, they're submerged in the water and uh, they're going.
0: Commandos.
1: Yeah. So I thought that would be pretty cool. And so he came back and I said, he said, well, I, here's the paperwork for a cook. And I said, well, could I? Uh, be a cook and, and still go in, uh, be, uh, go airborne. He said, "Oh, sure, that that no problem. Uh, you know, I didn't know that to be airborne, you automatically were put in the infantry. And if you went in the infantry, you obviously were going to go to Vietnam. Uh, okay. So it was a no-brainer. I I joined." To be an airborne cook, and he said you will be an airborne cook. And uh, the only thing I ever cooked was in Vietnam. I would heat up my C rations uh, with a tablet. C4 tablet it was a piece of explosive, but uh, you just put a match to it and it burned real fast and heat heat up your can of food.
0: That's and the only thing you ever cooked.
1: That's the only thing I ever cooked. But after I went in the army and found out what the mess mess all it was like i I was glad that i was ne- never was never a cook, <laughs> even though I went in the <laughs> into the infantry and I was a paratrooper right? it sure was a lot more glamorous uh jumping out of airplanes and you know being uh in the inventory and being able to shoot all the different weapons you know uh sure the m sixteen and the m fourteen and the, m sixty machine gun and oh yeah, caliber machine gun, so you know our specialty was light weapons and uh so that's that's what I did, and then um I found out after well you go to basic training, which was eight weeks of basic training, and then after uh, basic training, the infantry they have what they call advanced infantry training. So I went to that, and that was another eight weeks. And uh, I got my orders to go to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I thought the orders were to go to jump school. And um, we went to Fort Benning, and we got off the trucks at Fort Benning, Georgia, thinking we were going to jump go to jump school to be, become paratroopers, and we were standing in line formation. And it was a... Probably 100 guys, and they called all of us. Everybody got called off. They called off their name except for three of us, and three of us were standing, still standing in formation. And the sergeant said, well, um, "You guys are going to go to non-commissioned officer school. You know that that was a program that, um, if you oh, wow. were selected, go to non-commissioned officer school." Um, you could become a sergeant uh, and you would get the rank of Sergeant E5. And you would cool. go. Uh, 90 days, you would go to uh, non-commissioned officer school and you come out as a sergeant E5. At the time, I was uh, an E2 private. I was a private. and uh, But it was a strictly a volunteer program and well they volunteered me for it because i didn't volunteer volunteer to go uh, to non-commissioned officer school because that was guaranteed that you're going to go to vietnam ah find that and so i was upset about that i hadn't volunteered for it and they signed me up so he the sergeant told me he said well when you get your get to your company go see your company commander and see if he can get get you out because uh, if you haven't volu- volunteered for it, um, you don't have to go to it. So I went to see my company commander when I got there, and he was Special Forces. He had his green beret. Uh, and it, he was a captain. And I went in and talked to him, and he said, "Well, for, in order for you to go to S- Special Forces," uh, I was interested also in going to special forces, and I told him that I was interested in doing that. And he said, well, in order to be able to do that, you would have to re-up because you don't have enough time in the military. And uh, he told me, he says, uh, why don't you go ahead and start in the, in the school, non-commissioned officer school? He says, it won't be so bad. It's only 90 days. And you have the same training as what the officers have when they go to officer candidate school. It's very good training. And uh sure. chances are even if you don't you don't go to non commissioned officer school, chances are you're gonna go to Vietnam anyway. And he says, At least you'll you'll be a sergeant, you'll get better pay and it'll be better for you. Right. And so I decided to stay and go ahead and, and go into the school and I got in the school and it was a very good school, very good training. Uh prepared us very well for Vietnam. Um, you know, they taught us about uh, booby traps and how to dis- disarm booby traps and uh, how to lead men and um, set the example for you men and uh, t- taught you a lot of discipline and uh, gave you... A lot of times you go to classroom and they would put you in... Um, A life, life action situation like they would say okay you're in Vietnam and uh, you're, you're setting up an ambush and you just uh, blew the ambush and you've killed three enemy. well what are you going to do uh, you know and then you make a decision and then they say well you did that and uh, you're being attacked by a, a an enemy force of uh, approximately 30 people and they're attacking attacking your squad of 10 men and what's what's your reaction then they would give you multiple choice um choices what you should do you know and you pick out what would be the best thing and then they would explain to you you know uh what the right answer was and then if you picked that answer that you made a good choice um for example If the enemy was attacking you and you were under fire and you were outnumbered and uh, you would lay down a base of fire and uh, you would uh, try to have superior firepower and and take control of the situation, Um, and then they would tell you, you know, you made a good choice, or if you decided the best thing to do is to fall back and and try to uh, escape from the the enemy. You know why that wasn't such a good at, a good uh, choice. And so it was it was really good training. Uh, Sounds like it for you know situations in Vietnam. And then they you went through a a uh, obstacle course. I remember one training where they would give you different Objects. They would give you a tire and a, a piece of rope and a three-foot uh, piece of, of, of board, and you had to walk across this uh, ten-foot bank uh, wall, and you had to try to figure out how you were going to be able to get across this wall. It was too far to jump. and so there was there would be like three of us, and we had tried to figure out how we we're going to get across this ditch without falling into the water. Uh, it was supposed to be alligators and stuff, and you know uh-huh. and, um, so you try to figure out how how you'd be able to get across and i to tell you the truth, I can't remember how we we made it across what we did <laughs> to get across, but we were we made it across. Uh, and then they would give us another situation where you're you were in Korea, and um,
2: you had
1: it was twenty below zero, and you had four four trucks, and three of them would not start the only there was only one truck that would start, and it started. And
2: uh, all you had extra was a,
1: a piece of hose, uh, a two inch hose, and it was six feet long. And how could you get the other truck started with just a rubber hose? Huh. So, what you were, the object was, what your right answer was, is to take the hose. And put it over the exhaust pipe, and then your exhaust would take the other end and put it on the engine of one of the other trucks. And the warm air from your engine would heat the engine of the other trucks, or warm it up enough that that, that engine would start.
0: And this yeah. was all in NCO training. Yes. that you're talking about. Okay,
1: right, right. So they, they gave us these situations, and you were supposed to be able to solve the problems. You know. Yeah. Another one was where you were stuck. I remember you were stuck in the swamp, uh, and maybe in the jungle or whatever. And you had a a fifty foot rope, and you had a spare tire. And uh, how could you
2: get <laughs> you get out? And so, I uh,
1: see so you did. I think you had a He took the tire, he dug a hole, you buried the tire, you tied your rope to the to your front fender and the tire.
2: And I can't
1: remember if we did if we have a wench on the truck? It must He must have had a wench in the truck. He buried the tire in the ground and uh-huh. the wench the the the, the uh wench. And so the tire buried uh, gave you enough pull on the truck to pull you out of the out of the mud that you're able to get out. So that that's another one. Good trick. That was the trick, right? So I went to NCO school. And then after I graduated, you know, it was 90 days. They call it uh, shake and bake school because, you know, they they had back then the, the new chicken had come out where you could just take it. And you had the ingredients in the plastic bag and you put the chicken in there and you just shake it up and you put it in the <laughs> oven, you bake it and it would come right out of the oven, all cooked and everything. It was really really good. And it was uh called shake and bake, chicken. Huh. Uh so that's what what our nickname was. They call us shake and bakes because we go uh to the school ninety days and you go on as a private and you come out in ninety days and you're a shaken bake, you're all done.
0: You, you were you're ser- a sergeant.
1: That's right. So um uh so they call us ninety day wonders. <laughs> so we I, we graduated from that and so I was so I made sergeant in the army after only being in the army for seven months. Normally you would you would have to you know, if you went in a normal enlistment three years uh you if you re-upped after three years, you might be able to make Sergeant E-5. Well, I was able to make it in seven months by going through NCO school. Huh. I don't know. Maybe they they picked messed up by picking me, but anyway, <laughs> they, they picked me, and I graduated from it. So then after that, I went to Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, it was on the job training for training other soldiers that were going to Vietnam. And it was their advanced infantry training that I had just graduated from before I went to NCO school. And so they are going to go to eight weeks of advanced infantry training that they had the same training that I had before I went to NCO school. And I was was their sergeant, and I had nine men in my squad, so there was a ten-man squad. And so we... uh, Prepared those young men, ages most of them are ages uh, 17 to 20 years old, and I, at that time, I was I was 20 years myself, 20 years old myself. Wow. And so I was their sergeant uh, for two months, and then they went to Vietnam, and I got my orders to go to jump school. So then I went to to jump school, to be a paratrooper, three weeks. And then after my three weeks, I got a month's leave, and then I went to Vietnam as a Sergeant E-5. And I was assigned up by the the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone. You know, at that time, there was a a boundary between North Vietnam and South Vietnam, and it was an imaginary line at the 45th parallel. Divided North, and South Vietnam. You know, in the 45th parallel uh,
0: okay. latitude line.
1: 40, 45 degrees north latitude, sure. or maybe south latitude. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, it must have been south that, because it was it was hot.
0: South, yeah, south of the equator.
1: Right, because north. That's right. Because north, it's up like 45 degrees north. I think is. In Minnesota, also. North latitude. Oh, okay. So anyway, I went to Vietnam. And uh, I went to search school. So when you first get there, you you go through uh, uh, training for a week. And they process you, process your paperwork. And then you, you train some more. Uh, get, but mostly it was just get used to the humidity, you know, so hot, you know, 120, sure. uh, really very hot in the jungle. And then I was sent up north by the, the DMZ to Camp Evans, which was the 3rd Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division, and um, I was going to, you know, I was a paratrooper, and uh, the, the 101st airborne. They were still called airborne, but the helicopter. uh, That was the helicopter. They started using the helicopter extensively to carry troops in the combat. You know, uh, before that, uh, like World War II, the 101st Airborne, they jumped out of airplanes in the Normandy. uh, Whereas the helicopter could take five or six men in they could drop you off uh, in the jungle and all five, but you'd be there at once, whereas they, when they jumped you from an airplane, you'd be scattered all over. And sure, you
0: might- more tactical.
1: Yes, exactly right.
0: And did you practice jumping out of helicopters in jump school?
2: Yes. So yes, I did. Yep. Okay. Uh, and um, so when I got to Vietnam...
1: One of the men were. I was going out to the field where where my company was. I was assigned to Bravo Company, uh, Second of Five Hundred Six Um And uh, if you've ever watched the movie The Band of Brothers or read the book The Band of Brothers, um, mm-hmm. by Mel Gibson. Have,
0: I've and, seen some of them. I haven't. I haven't watched them all or read the whole read the book.
1: Okay. Uh, it's very good, very good book. And the movie is the most accurate movie I've seen on Vietnam. Um, it's, so anyway, I went to the 101st Airborne. They went the first cavalry unit, and 101st Airborne became air mobile instead of jumping on the airplanes, uh, this ass- air assaulted in helicopters. And um, our mission in Vietnam, basically, uh, we would have, the vast majority of the time, we would have search and destroy missions um, where the helicopters would take us into the jung- jungle and, and drop us off. And we would search for the enemy, try to find the enemy and then destroy them. And that was usually our mission, and so the helicopters typically we would go in five helicopters at a time um and it would be like uh, the five of diamonds you know the f- a five it has two helicopters right. in front two in the in the back and one in the middle and that's the way our formation was when we uh assaulted uh and then just before you went into the, the the jungle, uh, one one helicopter would break off, and he would be the first one in. And then the next helicopter would be right behind him. So as the helicopter come in, it would ho- hover over the ground. Uh, very seldom did it ever land in the ground. Sometimes they would land uh, if they felt like it was a secure area. Then they might land, but usually they would hover over the ground. And then we'd jump out of the, the helicopter, and it might be three or four feet. Sometimes it was 10 or 12 feet, you know, and it was a hard jump because you had a 100-pound backpack on your on your back. Uh, and if you jump jumping 10 or 12 feet up, you know, the rock would come up over your head, you know, and you'd, you'd hit the ground, and oh, it was. But well, sometimes you hit your head, you know. Um, Sheesh. So, but usually it was was maybe two or three feet off the ground and you just jump out of the helicopter and then uh, the first helicopter in you would have uh, five guys get off all at once and you make a little tiny circle and then the the next helicopter would be right behind it and as that your helicopter took off the next helicopter was landing and uh there was was a saying they said the life expectancy of helicopter pilot in vietnam was seven seconds because that's usually how long it took them to come in, and hover over the ground and drop off the troops and then get out. Uh, they were sitting ducks uh, wow. because uh, they were they would be high up in the in the air. You'd see them when you're on the ground. You could see them coming in, and right. uh, they were very vulnerable to sh- to shoot. They were very easy to shoot down. So wow that's how they would get us all on the ground then we would we would uh make our perimeter as each helicopter came come in our circle our perimeter would get bigger and bigger and bigger until we had the whole company here or if it was a platoon of 30 men typically a, co- a company was between 100 to 130 men and you'd wow. have three platoons in a company um, so you'd have 30 or 40 men in a platoon. Um, and then in, in the platoon, we would have three squads. So there 10-man squads, and you'd have three of them in a platoon, and then you'd have three platoons in a company.
0: And each squad had its own sergeant?
1: Right. Exactly. Okay. Right. Sergeant E-5. So that's what I was. So I was a squad leader. I had those nine men in my squad. And so that's how we, we operated uh, in the jungle, or a lot of times it was in the rice paddies when I first went to Vietnam. That's what we did. Uh, we operated in the, in the rice paddies. And, um, the first day I went out to the field, I was going to Bravo Company, the company I was with. Um, and as I mentioned, that was the same uh, unit that The Band of Brothers, the movie The Band of Brothers. It was the same unit, same battalion um, that were in in the movie. Uh, We were soldiers once and young um, with Mel Gibson. Anyway, that was World War II. They were in World War II. Same unit in in Vietnam was my unit. Okay. So my first day out and going out into the... My company was out in the rice paddies in the the, it was in the uh, highlands of Vietnam and so they had rice paddies and there was uh, it was very flat, you know, and they would have uh, like checkerboards and they would the rice paddies would have dikes around them to hold the water in and the rice would grow in these rice paddies, you know, and it would be Anywhere from uh, knee deep to up to your neck, depending on how much it rained. Wow. Uh, and uh, I didn't know they got that deep. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I remember sometimes walking the rice paddies and the water was right up to your. Uh, you put your head up in the air and the water was right up to your chin, just just below your mouth level
0: golly and you had that pack on all the time right
1: so we'd have a right we'd have a 80 100 pound pack and we'd have our weapon you know a machine gunner would have his his machine gun and uh wow at least a thousand rounds of ammunition he would carry um one to three thousand rounds of ammunition that he would carry besides his pack and all of his gear um so, during the monsoons, it was uh you had to be really careful uh that you didn't step in over your head uh, and then we would we would be walking on the during the monsoons we'd be walking on the rice paddy, which be the rice paddy normally would be like maybe two or three feet higher than the the water level, but during the monsoons it was all. Water, so you didn't even see the rice paddies. You just felt them with your your feet as you walked, and you huh. kind of walked along, sticking your foot out there, making sure you didn't step off the rice paddy because you'd be in over your head if you did. And if a guy stepped off, you know, he would it uh, you know, go in and it was over his head, and his buddy would you'd have to grab your guy next to you or behind you. And you know, try to pull them up, back up on the rice paddy. So it was, oh, could be, it could be pretty scary. Um, but anyway, back to my story. The, the first day I'd just been in Vietnam, uh, maybe a week or 10 days, and I was going out to meet my company. and uh, They flew me on the helicopter out in the rice paddy, as you know, the, where the enemy was. They were searching for. The Viet Cong at that time, it was uh, Viet Cong territory, you know, the Viet Cong were farmers uh, during the day, and typically they they would fight at night. Uh, And they wore the Uh black pajamas and they carried the weapon. Uh, And so I flew, I flew out to where my company was, and it was a on a, a little bit of like a like a little knoll and uh it was normally it would be a hill but uh it was like maybe three feet above the water and it was just a high spot and the whole company was there and it was maybe half of a football field size and the helicopters land there and, and drop me off and as a like, dropped me off, one of these privates come running up to me and said, hey, Sergeant Aguiar. And it it was uh, one of the guys that was in my squad in in, Fort Lewis when he was going through AIT training. I was a sergeant just before he went to Vietnam. And so he went to Vietnam when he got done with his advanced infantry training. And I went to jump school for three weeks to be a paratrooper. And so he had been in Vietnam for three weeks ahead of me. Uh-huh. So uh, it was one of my men that was in my squad when I was back in the States. And so we talked and then uh, I told him that I would talked to him in the morning. And um, so the next morning uh, we start marching, you know, walking single file through the rice paddies. And we were walking on the dike trying to stay on the dike uh because if he stepped out like i said if he stepped off the dike you'd go in over your head yeah and um so we were walking and and he was point man he was the first man in the column and he was leading the company and um, we marched all day long and then uh, in the evening, uh, usually like maybe around 6 o'clock or something like that, we would start putting up our – making camp for the night. We call that a, a night knife, knife defensive position. We call it NDP, night defensive position. And so the infantry, they always try to defend themselves
2: um, on
1: high ground. They all, you always try to get the high ground because it's easy sure. to defend. Uh, from high ground, uh, if you have hot, you say you're on a hill and that's all low ground below you, that's the most tactical advantage is to have high ground because otherwise, uh, that way, your enemy has to attack uphill, which makes it right. easy, much harder to attack uphill than it is to go downhill uh, or right. flat. Um, so we always try to set up our night defensive position for the night on the on the high ground so this as we were walking through the the rice paddies we came to this big hill
2: and it was uh
1: probably 100 feet above the rice paddies Uh, and so we were making our climb going to climb up the, the, the top of the hill and set up our night defensive position on top of the hill. And as we were walking up the hill, single file, um, Private Dodd, the man that I had mentioned that I'd seen him in, uh, he was in my squad at Fort Lewis back in the States. He was the point man. He was the first man in the column. And he stepped on a a bouncing Betty uh, booby trap. There was a pressure-release mine where you step on it and as long as your your foot's on it, and you hold it down, the pressure down, it wouldn't go off, but when you took your foot off, and then the mine would jump up, it was spring-loaded, and it would pop up in the air about three feet, and it would go off, and um, it was very deadly. Wow. Uh, so, it, it would pop up and then explode about chest high. So... He stepped on oh, yeah. when he took his foot off. You know, it bounced up and it exploded, and he had a sucking chest wound. Yeah, he was wounded, and sucking chest wound is when you get a hole in your chest, and uh, you're not breathing through your mouth, but the hole in your chest is where you're getting the air. So it's a you're sucking yeah. air in. Yeah, Uh So it's it's usually what happens is that. Person uh, starts swallowing their own blood, and so they they strangle. They get, they die uh, by strangulation yeah. as the blood gets caught in their throat and they strangle. Um, so what you do in that situation is um, you try to block that hole in the chest so that they won't breathe through that hole. So they'll breathe normally, like through their right normal the mouth, you know, or their, their nose. Um, so usually what, what you would do is uh, put a piece of plastic over that to cover that hole so that they won't, they won't be breathing through that hole in their chest. Right. But yeah. He had that sucking chest wound and he died. Um, so I had been in the field a day and somebody I knew, um, uh, got killed. He was dead. Wow. A big, uh, awakening for me to realize you know my first day in Vietnam and somebody I know got killed so it was uh, wow a great a big realization that you know this is life or death situation and uh, I'd just like to back up now Um, why did I go you know I could have went to Canada, like a lot of draft Dodgers did, or I could have tried to be a conscientious objector, or I could have uh, burned my draft card, you know, and went to jail. Um, Well, I had all those freedoms, I had the the liberty uh, to be able to live that uh, the way I wanted to and had the freedoms of being able to go where I wanted to do to go and do the things I wanted to do and had the opportunity to go to school and college and you know I had a lot of freedoms as an American and I I felt like it was my duty and when I signed that paper and raised my right hand to take the oath um, I felt like it was my duty I had volunteered to serve my country and it was my destiny you know I had trained to go to Vietnam and I trained to be in it um, a sergeant in Vietnam in charge of 10 men. So I felt like my destiny was to go to Vietnam and serve my country and try to do the best I can and be the best soldier I could. And um, I felt that was. You know, my. My duty in life, and so uh, I was going to make the best of it. And uh, I wasn't. Wouldn't say I was the greatest sergeant. I wasn't. Uh, wasn't the worst sergeant. You know, I was a mediocre sergeant. I feel, um, but I was willing to put my line life on the line, and my life on the line, and serve my country the best I could. And if I had to die for somebody else, if I could save another man's life, I was willing to do that. You know, if he didn't have to die, and I could do something to save his life. I, I was willing to do it, but yet uh, I was going to try to stay, try to protect myself and do the best I could to keep myself alive also, you know? Sure, I want, sure. I wanted to go back to the States. And yeah, I bet. Uh, live a normal life, you know, and have all the freedoms. Um, but yet I felt like if there was a God, that's what God would put me there for. And um, so my first nine months in, in Vietnam, um, I never seen the enemy. I never got any, got opportunity to shoot at anybody. Um, we would get mortars or we would get ambushed. I wouldn't say ambushed, sniper fire, not an ambush. An ambush would be where a bunch of the enemy would be. Uh, hiding, waiting for somebody to come by and then uh, spring an ambush on them. And, you know, that's most, a lot of times, I wouldn't say most of the times, but if we were out in the field, say three days, three or four days, one of those days we would set up an ambush. And uh, our ambushes were uh, usually... Squad size, uh, you know, 10-man size, like I as a sergeant with the nine men in my squad, we would set up an ambush that night. We would go out from the the perimeter from where everybody else is, and we would go out uh, and set up an ambush and hide along a trail or uh, a logical place where the enemy might come through it might be a ravine or it could be a, a canyon, you know, that not too many canyons in, in Vietnam. However, sometimes you, there would be like a, a place in the mountains where there, you would have rocks on both sides, on, on two uh-huh. sides, you know, and a, like a trail going through where we would sit up and ambush. Uh, but mostly, most of the time it was, we would hide in the bushes on a ridge Ridge line, or it might be a, a trail junction where the enemy had trails and there would be a, a junction where two trails met, uh, and we could, if you seen tracks or if, if the grass was beaten down a lot, you knew that the enemy had been there recently, um, uh-huh. so you could read the signs and tell that the enemy had traveled there, you know, or, or yeah, we got, we got Intel that the enemy had been there. You know, uh, they would. We we had uh, uh, long-range reconnaissance patrols. They would be patrols that would go out on patrol, and they would just search for the enemy. They wouldn't make contact. They would just try to spy on the enemy and see what the enemy's doing, and and then report back and and tell uh, higher up, you know, our commanders uh how big a force it was and uh what they were doing and you know where they were traveling and then right. our our company or our platoon would go out and we would try to find uh the enemy and uh our intelligence told us that they were traveling along this river uh and so we would set up an ambush along this river or whatever it was and so usually about you know we had three three squads who so usually once every three or four nights we would be out all night uh on ambush and typically when you're on on ambush you would uh be fifty percent on alert uh in other words uh you'd have buddies and one of you would be sleeping and the other one would be on guard and then uh you'd do that for an hour and then the other guy would be on guard for an hour and you'd sleep. Um, yeah. That's when you were on ambush. Now, if you weren't on ambush, you were in the perimeter and uh, you would be on guard uh, one out of. So, well, if there's three guys in your position, typically a squad, there would be nine men, and then I would be the 10th person. So, there would be three positions. There would be uh, two positions that would have three men apiece, that would be six, and then the fourth the third position would have four men, it would be the sergeant would be in that position. And so if you were on a position with three men and then once every three hours you would pull guard and you would rotate out during the night. So each man would pull okay. an hour guard and then he'd wake up the next man and then he would wake up the next man and then it would be your turn once every three hours. Sure. There was four of us on guard, and then you would have guard once every four hours. But -hmm. when you were on ambush, you were on guard half the night. You know, every every other hour you were on guard. Yeah. Looking for doesn't
0: make for doesn't make for a good night's rest.
1: Definitely not. Definitely (laughs) not. Um, And so, typically, what would happen? We would be uh, walking on rice paddies or we would be walking along a river uh, and uh, there would be a sniper and he would see us, you know, you could see the during the daytime, you could see across the rice paddies, you could see a long ways and you could see when you there's 30 men walking across wide open ground, you know, it's just about all water. And
3: uh-huh.
1: Very easy to see American GIs walking across the rice paddies. And so they would figure out, where, you know, what's the most likely place we would uh, go. And then they would set up an ambush or just set up a sniper, and he would sit there, and he wait for, for us to come along.
3: Wow.
1: We knew that the most likely places were... Ambushes were so we would not go purposely go to where it would be a good place for an ambush, so we would go out of the way so that we wouldn't be ambushed, so I was never my year in Vietnam, I was never ambushed uh, we didn't allow the enemy to ambush us uh or else we were just fortunate enough uh by God's grace, we didn't get ambushed you now a lot of companies a lot of americans got ambushed and it, sometimes you could be the best best soldiers out there and you could still be ambushed even yeah. though you did everything right you still might get ambushed you know but just but sure now i can say by god's grace we were never ambushed because the worst thing you can be in uh is an ambush because um when somebody's shooting at you, for your first reaction, is to get down uh, and try to hide behind the rock or try to hide behind a bank or a, a log or anything. Get behind something. Uh, yeah. But in an ambush, that's the worst thing you can do because the enemy will just pick you off. Uh, you're laying on the ground. You, the enemy knows where you are, and so they'll just wait for till they can see you, and then they'll... They'll shoot you, but the best thing to do in an ambush is to stand up and attack your enemy. Uh, And you do that in force, and you have enough guys attacking. Yes, some of the people are going to get shot because the enemy's shooting at you. But when you have 30 men or 50 men running at you and you're shooting at them, Even though you have a machine gun and all these guys are running at you, it's pretty hard to shoot them all. And yet, that's the best defense in the ambush is to stand up and run ahead and and charge ahead and try to knock out that machine gun or whoever's shooting at you. And and sometimes with all these guys running, you know, if you're attacking, the enemy sees you attacking, sometimes they'll just get scared and they'll run. They'll get up and run, even though they have the advantage. Um, so really, the, the typically the worst thing you can do in an ambush is is to lay down and let the enemy shoot at you and just lay down a base, a fire and be shooting with machine gun at you all the time. It's they eventually pick you off. Hmm. And so um, we would, our best ambush would be an L shape ambush where the ambush would be shaped like an L. So you would have um, uh, the L, the bottom of the L, you would have men lay, laying there um, in the bottom of the L. And then as the, the the top of the L, you can imagine an L-shaped ambush. You'd, you'd be shooting, let's say if we're going north and south, you would have men lying along in a northerly northerly direction. Um, And so they would be shooting towards the south, and then there would be men east and, would say they were lined up west, they would be shooting east, and so in your L-shaped ambush, you would have men shooting in a southerly direction and also in an easterly direction at the same time. And you're not shooting at each other, right?
0: You're, yeah.
1: You're in an L formation, <laughs> um, and that's the most effective because your your bullets are crossing each other. So sure. Whoever's caught in an L shaped ambush, it's the worst kind of ambush you can be be in. And so that's the kind of stuff that we did. And um, and then in May of, I w- I was in Vietnam from October of '68 until. October of 1969 that's when I was in Vietnam Um, so from October until May uh, we had been in the the Highlands and also we had been in the rice paddies and then right along the coast the uh, South China Sea along the coast uh, for about a month there we were right along the coast uh, not right on the water but just maybe a quarter of a mile inland where it was still s- loose sand and we would patrol along uh the beaches but it, we we wouldn't we didn't patrol along the ocean but it was just a little bit inland and it was it would be still jungle and sand um huh. and and so that Part of our my tour was where we were along on the beach in the beaches and so it was, it would be like sand dunes is where we would uh there would have sand dunes and then there would be uh, palm meadow bushes and and very very thick hedgerows where the jungle would would be growing and stuff and uh there would be rice paddies, and then you would get farther inland and then it would be rice paddies, and and The Highlands, Uh, if you think back, Andrew, when you were in, you know, living around Denver, uh, you know, Denver was pretty flat. You know, you get on the plains and like Aurora would be real flat. Yeah. And then you get around uh, Lakewood area and you'd have the the Highlands, you know, you'd have the the Front Range, you know, Lakewood. Sure. Really. And so that's what the just it would be that kind of terrain in Vietnam. Also, you would have the beach, and then you would have the rice paddies, and then you have the highlands. Then, as you farther get more inland, uh, you would have the mountains. Okay. uh, Now, most of Vietnam, uh, I think the longest, the widest part of Vietnam, South Vietnam, was 37 miles wide. Um, Very long, very narrow country. Now. North and South Vietnam—it's all called Vietnam. Now, it's about 2,000 miles long, and typically it's 25 to 30 miles wide. So it's a very wow. long, narrow country. And so, um, wow, for for you to go from the the beaches to the mountains, you could very easily do that in 10-15 minutes in a, in a helicopter. You know, huh. traveling in a helicopter. So, uh, after the mountains, you know, I got there when it was during the rainy season, and uh, when I first got there, it was, uh, I would say it rained probably every three days, but the the monsoon, the, the center of the monsoon was when it would rain every day, and it would pour down rain for 24 hours straight, just as hard as it could rain. I mean, you could sit a bucket outside, and you could fill that bucket up in no time with rain, and it would just pour, pour, pour. Uh, you can think of uh, Benoah and his ark, you know, when, when it was raining. Yeah. Days and 40 nights. Well, in Vietnam, it would, might rain for three days straight, just pouring down rain. And then it would put for maybe a day, and then it would start raining again. Um, and so the roads would be flooded. Uh, and did the- you
0: guys go on patrol on during that super super rainy rainy season?
1: Yes. Yeah. We would be on Man. patrol, and that's we wouldn't go out on the in the rice paddies because that would be way over our heads. We would be to- sure. more toward where the beach was and the, those sand dunes I was tell- telling you about. Yeah, Uh, we would be uh, patrolling those sand dunes and um, either that or else we'd be in the highlands where it was high enough to where uh, it would. It wouldn't be over our heads.
2: Uh, Yeah. And so there
1: was a lot of. uh, A lot of. uh, What do I want to call them? Ditches that were full of water. You know, and so we'd go on patrol, and, and you go down one ditch, and it'd be over your head. So what we would have to do is have to use uh, air mattresses and use them to be able to float across the ditch um, to get on the other side. We put our packs, wow. on our air mattress, and try to go across, and either that or else we would have a string of rope across, and <clears throat> and then we would. Uh, try to go across. We'd send our packs across and then we would go tie ourselves to the rope and then the guys on the other side would pull us across uh, on the rope, uh, you know, as the water would be rushing by. And so wow. it was, it was uh, pretty dangerous, you know. It was a adventure. <laughs> you know,
3: yeah.
1: I, I would like to mention it, right now that Um, second born children are typically the most adventurous of the board of all the children usually the second born typically is the most uh, adventurous you know I'm a second born my brother I have one brother that's older than me so I'm second born so I'm much more adventurous than him and my son Tom you know him he's the second born he's very very adventurous and I know you, you're the second born. And I know you as being a very adventurous person, too. You know, uh-huh. we a lot of a lot of 14 together and and uh, we do. Yeah, I, adventures
0: together. I never thought of I never thought about that. My wife always says the second born is the. Is always the one that takes care of the uh, the parents. They're the more nurturing towards the parents. <laughs> So, I don't know where those two jive, but normally yeah. she says that about my my second born daughter she's like remember she's gonna she's the one that's gonna be taking care of you
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, I I'll totally have to agree with it too i I really um from what I've observed you know i'm seventy six years old, and what I've observed that now I haven't I've studied the firstborn. I've studied the, the secondborn. Um, you know, typically the firstborn are leaders, you know. Um, right. Uh, they lead the rest of the kids in the family. You know, they're usually the boss. And uh, so they make good leaders. And I look at my brother, you know, me and my brother. My brother was an officer and I was an NCO. Uh, you know, my brother, He would, if I was had men, you know, I would have men under me. And then my brother would be in command of me and other squads, you know, if it was an infantry squad. So, yeah, it's very true in our our life. Um, so that's what our most of my time in Vietnam was. And then in May, we got orders that we were going to go into the Ashaw Valley. And the Ashaw Valley is right along the DMC. Um, uh, Demilitarized zone. It's on the border of North Vietnam and Laos. And uh, it's the Asha Valley is probably, I would say, five miles wide at the, the widest area, and it's about 30 miles long. And uh, the Ho Chi Minh goes uh, straight through it. And uh, The the Asha Valley is uh, the the mountains to the east is the border of Laos and Vietnam, and so we patrolled along the Laotian border. uh, 101st Airborne, we were our area of operation for the last three months of my time in Vietnam was in the ashaw valley um, now during the the monsoons because of resupply they had to get helicopters in to re uh, us uh, up in the mountains and so we we didn't stay in the mountains in the ashaw valley uh in the valley between the two mountain ranges there was two mountain ranges and the valley was in the middle uh, they pulled us out during the monsoons because helicopters uh couldn't get in because the the rain and the clouds were so low, yeah the mountains, the mountains were in the clouds, you know, so the helicopter mm-hmm. didn't fly so they couldn't resupply us so during monsoons, we would have to go back uh, to the flatlands where you know along the coast and in the the uh, rice paddy areas, yeah, uh, but the asha valley the, the ten, 10 major battles in Vietnam, my unit was in two of those battles. Um, one of them was Hamburger Hill, the Battle of Hamburger Hill, and the other one was the last major battle in Vietnam. And that was Ripcord, the Battle of Ripcord. Um, the first major battle uh, in Vietnam was the Battle of I Drang uh, Valley. is was the, the First Cavalry Division, which the movie "The Band of Brothers" we were soldiers once. The story I was talking about earlier with Mel Gibson mm-hmm. that was the first major battle in Vietnam. After that battle was over, everybody in well, most people back in, in the United States thought, "Oh, we've killed so many." Uh, of the enemy in the I Drang Valley, it was such a great victory. Um, the war won't last very long at all because North Vietnam won't be able to supply more troops. They'll run out of soldiers, and um, which was very wrong. Uh, hmm. They kept on just supplying, kept on kept the war going on and kept on going on, you know, for ten years, and then the our in May of 1969, uh when we went into the Asha Valley, Hamburger Hill was the first major battle that we were in. And when that when we won that battle, well, we'll go back to I-Drang I, I Valley, everybody in the United States was thinking that the war would be over soon. Well, Hamburger Hill... It had been like five years, 6 let's see, 64 to 69, so that would be five years we'd been in the war. And we had another major battle, the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Hmm. And we took, it was a regiment of, of North Vietnamese that were on top of Hamburger Hill. It wasn't called Hamburger Hill. It was just on top of this. Uh, mountain. Yeah. And, and it, it, let's say I can't remember the mountain, the name of the mountain, but it was called the the in the name of the mountain meant crouching giant. So that was the name of the mountain. What it means in Vietnam. Um, wow. So it was a regiment about uh, six hundred, six to eight hundred. NDA and it was uh they were on top of a mountain and they decided that they were going to fight to the death and uh we knew we, we we were on search and destroy missions found out the enemy was there and so 101st Airborne was there our mission was to find out where the North Vietnamese were and to destroy them uh attack them and destroy them and so that was our mission and we did Um, it was a great victory for us but after we took the hill killed the enemy um,
2: we we lost probably a couple hundred men wounded and killed
1: like 680 of the enemy so it was a great victory for us. But uh, after we took the hill, it was just a hill, and then we left it. We, we we left the hill. And so one of the soldiers, after the battle was over, he put a sign out. He, they call it Hamburger Hill because it was like a meat grinder going in there. You know, it was like hamburger. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. many died
0: i'm looking at a picture of of hamburger hill now now as you're talking i was looking at google maps and i was looking at there's a historical picture with the chinook helicopter over this hill and it's just totally deforested
1: yes totally um that's, it was just a bunch crazy. Of fallen trees, you know and they bombed the mountain uh to where it was just sand and fallen trees you know um and after we took the hill now i did i would my company was not in the battle of hamburger hill we were support we were reserves and we operated all around hamburger hill but the enemy was all over in that area so the 93 last three months of my tour was all around hamburger hill in the ashaw valley so i got to see Hamburger Hill many times, and like you said, it was just a bald mountain with a bunch of trees down. You know, it was just a bare mountain, so it was very yeah. odd where it was. So anytime we got on high high ground, we could look over and see Hamburger Hill. Um, and our operations—that's what we did. We would helicopters would pick us up, and we'd go and operate in an area. Uh, find the enemy, uh, and try to destroy them. And then after a few days, the helicopters would pick us up, take us to another area, drop us off. and uh, So that's what we did. We were in the Asha Valley 100 days. Uh, we went in with 115 men. And after the 100 days, there was 15 of us, excuse me, there was 27 of us that were left that hadn't been wounded or killed. Uh, wow, one of the 27 that hadn't been wounded or killed. Um wow. You know, you 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 probably heard of the the why why me syndrome. You know, why did other guys get killed and not me? You know, I didn't get a scratch. I, I I've seen I, I've seen men decapitated, you know, men blown to pieces. Um had guys sitting next to me uh, get shot. You know, wow. men in my squad in, in position next to me. You know, all three men uh, get wounded. Or uh, I, the whole time I was in the show though the 100 days I was there, I only lost one man killed. Um, most of most of the guys in my squad were wounded at one time or another. I was. In fact i don't i can't think of one one man in my squad that didn't get wounded one time um I'm the only one that i know of uh i know another man in my my squad uh he got wounded twice in one day he was wounded three times um and i never got a scratch um so i'll wow. I'll, I'll tell you about um My experience of when I realized that there was a God, and i yeah, I should have prepared i would have liked to use I would like to use uh scripture and i I neglected to look up some scripture to share with you, but looking back now, one piece of scripture that i I can immediately comes to my mind and I probably used it. This is my text when I spoke to you in 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 the teen department. Uh, When David uh, went to the camp where his brothers were and, you know, Saul uh, and the Israelites were fighting the Philistines and Saul. um, David went to the camp bring food to his brothers and he told his his his, um, his brothers is there not a cause
0: is there not a cause yeah
1: yes you know when, <clears throat> when Goliath uh, was was challenged the Israelites to send out somebody to fight me and I'll fight and if if Israel the Israelite wins you know the Philistines will serve you and if if uh, the Philistines win, we will be your conquerors. And Saul would, yes. Saul would go out, I think it was 40 days, and he would challenge them. And nobody in Israel would take the challenge. Everybody was afraid of of, of uh, Goliath. You know, Goliath would give, give the challenge, and nobody would would answer the call. And David went to the camp, and he was taking food to give to his brothers his older brothers, and he, see, he heard Saul, or King, no, not, he heard Goliath challenging the Israelites, you know, send out a man to fight me. David said, is there not a cause? David said, I'll be the man, I'll go out, and I will fight.
0: Yeah, First Samuel 17.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. And... Uh, Is there not a cause for America? You know that was when I was in Vietnam, I had a cause. My cause was to fight for my country. Uh, Whether I agreed with my government or not, I had a cause. My cause was to to do my my duty and I was going to do it. Um, And when I come to know that there was a true God and I knew about God. Was uh, when the helicopters one day, the helicopters came to pick us up. And we were our operation was to go. And um, this area for the enemy. Uh, well, the, the time was when I was in the Asha. We were in contact almost every day, either sniper fire or or mortars. Now, uh, North Vietnam didn't have artillery to fight us. They used mortars. Now, the only time they got to use artillery uh, was when they were attacking a, a base camp. And they uh-huh. would take the artillery in the Asha Valley. And the only time they used artillery on us was the battle of ripcord and that was the last that was my unit um after i came home from vietnam uh, six months after i came home the battle of ripcord but it was a lot of the same guys in my squad were in the battle of ripcord and It was where the enemy used artillery. They hauled artillery into the jungle, and they used these um, anti-aircraft guns to shoot at fire base ripcourt. And the second of the 506th, my battalion um, were fighting the enemy, and there was approximately 500. Now, I wasn't there, but there was 500 of us at Firebase Ripcord, defending it, and there were 12,000 of the MBA that were attacking Firebase wow. Ripcord, And they had it surrounded. Um,
2: but going back to when I
1: come to know that there was a guy, we had gotten in that orders to, that we were going to helicopter into this area, and we were going to land on this ridge bridge line at LZ landing zone and then we go single file and I was going to be on the first helicopter and uh, my squad would be the first in. And so my squad would have the first would be on the first two helicopters. And the first helicopter goes in, you would always have a sergeant on the first helicopter because you had have somebody in charge a command position to be in charge on that first helicopter. And also, they had had to have a radio and a radio man to go with that sergeant so that the sergeant could tell commander what was going on. You know, whether you're receiving fire or whether whether you're being attacked or being overrun or whatever, you had to have a radio and there had to be a sergeant there. So that was, that was my job. I was In charge, I was going to be on the first uh, helicopter with my radio operator. Okay, so when whenever we were in a combat assault, that's helicopters going in was called combat assault. So when we're in a combat assault, you would always have the uh, a sergeant in the first helicopter, and a radio operator with him, so that the sergeant would have a radio to be able to communicate with his commander about what's happening on the battlefield. You know, whether it's a hot LZ, whether you're taking fire, whether you're being overrun, or whatever. Um, so you could communicate with with everybody. And so, um, my squad was split in two. There was the first two helicopters would be. Uh, my my squad. So I was in the first helicopter. As the helicopter's coming in to land, we're receiving fire and you could hear the bullets hitting the, the helicopter. Uh, but the helicopter's flying fine. So they drop us off and we make a, a perimeter, a circle, five-man circle, and then the next helicopter comes in with the rest of my squad. So now we have ten men and so this is a company size operation, so there's over 100 of us. So it takes a while for all of us to get on on the ground. However, um, as the helicopters come in, they were not shooting at us on the ground. They were, the enemy was trying to shoot down a helicopter. And yeah. They were shooting uh, as they were coming in and, and leaving. Um, so we were on the ground, but we didn't have anybody to shoot at. Um but we finally got our company on the ground, and then we started to move out and uh you always to have tactical advantage and in, in the mountains, you always uh travel along ridge lines, so our objective by evening was to set up our night defensive position on top of the mountain. Um, and we were on a ridge line now, going up to the top of the mountain. Uh, and you always, as you go up a ridge line, as you know, you know, you live in the mountains. Uh, when you're on a ridge line, there's you have high ground, high ground in front of you, but on three the other three sides, it's low ground. So uh-huh. you, you have uh, when you're moving up a mountain, that's the best tactical position to be in, is uh, you have the advantage on three sides. The only disadvantage you have is where you're when you're going up the up the ridge line. You have to go uphill. Um, sure. So the enemy knew that, and so as we started moving up the ridge line, they were on the ridge, and they knew that we would have to come up that way, and so they would sit there, and snipers would sit and wait for the first man to come along and then shoot at him. And um, they would shoot at us and then we would get down. We would drop our packs. And either a squad or a fire team, usually a squad would maneuver around with to the left or to the right. And we would try to outflank them and, and circle around and get behind the enemy. And hopefully uh, capture them or kill them but they, they were not dumb neither they knew that um, they were probably just one or two men and we were
0: uh, a
3: company a
1: large yeah a company uh, could be a company or it could be 10 to 100 men uh, just they didn't know Yeah, and they knew that they were all at a disadvantage so they didn't stay around very long they would shoot a couple of rounds at us, and then they would take off. And of course, they would take off higher up on the on the ridge line. Uh, and so then uh, we would get to where they were, and they'd be long gone. And uh, either that, or else we we might find a couple of rounds where they shot at us, and uh, they'd be long gone. So then we get have to get in single file formation again, because we're going through the jungle, and we're on this ridge line. Um, so then we would have to move out, and we'd get a couple hundred yards, and then they'd shoot at us, and we'd get down and try to maneuver and get around them. And uh, this went on all, all afternoon, all day long. Uh, and then it was getting towards evening, and the company commander could see that that we were not going to be able to make it to the top of the mountain. So he made a good tactical decision that we would set up our night division, night defensive position on a, on, on this knoll. It was not the top of the mountain, but it was uh, high ground and it was flat where we could, the company could be there and we could defend ourselves pretty good. So uh, by the time we got up there, it was dusk, and we get, we got there, and uh, we started making a circle, uh, going around, uh, setting up our perimeter, and the way we did that, we would walk in a circle, uh, single file, and since I was in the front, um, you know, my squad would be front so I'd have three positions, so I'd have the first three positions and then the next squad would have the next three and then the next three. As we're coming around the circle until the circle met up with me, then we knew that we were all in position. Oh
2: so
0: So, and how big of an area is this would this circle be? Like how big a cross would the circle be?
1: This circle is probably 30 yards uh, in diameter.
2: Okay. But each position, you know, the positions are
1: 10 yards at the most apart. I would say eight yards apart, maybe 20, 25 feet apart each position. Gotcha. Uh, and so we're, we're all, the whole company's in position. And then our commander and our medic was in the middle of the perimeter. Um, and we protected the commander. And um, he had all the major uh, radios that he could call in artillery and airstrikes. Um, and also the, the medic was there so that anybody, whoever needed a medic, the medic could go from the center of the circle. It was the best position for him to be in.
2: Gotcha. What we didn't know was that this little knoll was
1: actually an NBA base camp. It was their camp. And so they had foxholes dug around where these positions were. And they knew where all of our positions were. Because uh, as we set up our position, you know, I would be standing, laying there, and right next to me there would be a foxhole. Um, wow. So we knew that the enemy knew where we were, but I knew that if um, if we were attacked, the best place to get would be in that foxhole because I'd have a little bit of protection in that foxhole so by the time we got the whole company set up it was totally pitch dark and uh, normally when you first start setting up your position you would take your claymore mine which is an anti-personnel mine and uh, it was about the size of a small book you know it would be maybe six inches wide and four inches uh, high and about two inches thick. And it was just filled with all all kinds of BBs, double lot buckshot okay. and be yeah. uh, explosive in it. And it had little legs that you could stick in the ground. And so normally what we would do, uh, as soon as we set up a position, we would crawl out in front of us, set up our claymore mines and they were anti personnel mines. So you would set it up and you would face it towards the enemy. So, as the enemy would come towards you, if they were charging towards you, if there was a mass attack, uh, we could shoot our Claymore mine and it would probably kill several of them if they were running to- towards you. Of course, in the jungle, it's pretty hard to run, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that's a theory. But the only problem with the Claymore mine, is it had a 100-foot back blast on it. So, in other words, the back blast was 100 feet. Uh, if you were within that 100 feet, you could be injured. Um, you know, there would be a ball of flame, and it would come backwards also. Yeah. Um, so, we, what we would do to solve that, we would take our Claymore mine, typically, and sit it. In front of a tree, and so the back blast would go into the tree so that it wouldn't come back and hurt us. Yeah, we were, you know, our claymore mine might be only 10 or 15 feet in front of us, but we would put it in front of a tree to protect us. Sure, but this night we didn't even have time to set up our, our claymore mines because it was already pitch dark. If you went out there, you you don't know oh, was out there. You might never come back, or you, you might fall in a hole, or the enemy get you, or whatever. So we couldn't set out to claim more mines. Um, so as soon as we got in our positions, the enemy we could hear the enemy probing our position. You could hear the brush crack. You know, you lay there, and all of a sudden you you hear a branch break, or uh, some, the enemy would step on a a sapling and it go pow, you know, a big noise. And right. Whenever we heard those noises, we'd throw a claim, we would throw a hand grenade out there. Um, and so this went on all night. And we were on 100% guard uh, alert. And we were laying there, and that went on all night. And just
2: before,
1: before dawn, uh, the enemy attacked. They have what they call s- zapper squads. Uh, they have suicide squads. They would have men that would they would not carry weapons. Uh, they would just have a, a pair of shorts on, and they have like a carpenter's apron, and they would have explosives like TNT. On a, with a fuse, and you pull the string, and the fuse would start burning, and then they would take, it be like throwing sticks of dynamite, but only a uh-huh. sticks And they would try to get close enough to us to throw these uh, explosives out and cause confusion so that, uh, injure us, so that we would panic, and so we would shoot uh, at them, and then they would know where we were and the main thing they were trying to get was the machine gun to shoot. They could get the machine gun to start firing, then they'd know where the machine gun was and they would attack the machine gun. Sure. Zapper squads were suicide, and they were just out to find out where we were, and that was and the caused chaos. So they, when they went out, it was suicide. They didn't expect to come back. They were uh, giving their life so the rest of the of their enemy force could attack us. So they started probing our position and they had crawled up that day. Uh, a new man came into my squad. I got a new man in my squad. In fact, I got two of them. Um, one man's name was Lyle Lepke, and the other man was. Uh, Can't remember his name. Anyway, I had two men, in my, two new men in my squad, and uh, Lyle Glepke was his first day in the field. And uh, so, when we got the heli- just before we got into helicopters, I told him he would be in the helicopter with me, uh, and we would land. And then, as we moved out, he would be uh, farther behind me. in our our, as we went single file so then he when we got in our positions he was on my position to my left and then i had another position on my light right and there was four of us in my position where i was in the middle Mm -hmm. well the enemy crawled up to his position and they got close and they threw a satchel charge into his foxhole you know, explosive into his foxhole and blew off his left leg from the knee down and blew oh, off his man. Arm, um, and then wounded the other two men in his position also. So they were calling for a medic and Lyle Lepke was he was down the bottom of the foxhole um, wounded. But the other two men were calling for a medic. <clears throat> the medic came to my position. He Come to call him to my position. Well, actually, he was he was walking uh, my position. He got to my position and he crouched down next to me. And he said, uh, "Who's calling for a medic?" And I said, "Those guys in the position next to me." And about that time, you know, the enemy he was talking really loud. Um, he wasn't afraid apparently, but anyway. Uh, he was talking pretty loud, and I was down the foxhole, and I was looking up at him, and I was talking real soft, so the enemy couldn't hear me. And all of a sudden, a explosion landed right next to the medic. Boom! And went off, and he fell on top of me. And uh, I was down the foxhole. He was laying on top of me, and I pushed him off of me, and I looked up. And there was an enemy standing like three feet away from me, and he had, there was a bank, and he had been crawled up the edge of the bank, and he was hiding behind the bank. And then when the medic, uh, when he threw the satchel charge and blew the medic in on top of me, he stood up. And I brought my M16 up and went to shoot him, and when the medic fell on me, it had, start, it had started raining that night. And the medic was on top of me. He pushed my M16 in the mud. I brought my gun up to shoot, and my gun was jammed. Ah. So the M16, there's a quick release that you hit it, and um, it puts a new round into the chamber, clears the chamber, puts a new round in it. And so I brought my gun up, and I shot the man. I shot three three times at him, and he fell over backwards over that bank. <clears throat> and then the medic woke up.
2: And 43 years
1: later, a medic called me on the telephone when we were at Tom's house in Winston-Salem. And he told me, he said, is this Ron Aguiar? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, is this the Ron Aguiar that was with Bravo Company, second to Five Hundred Six Hundred First Airborne? I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, Ron, this is a man from your past many years ago, you probably don't even know who I am. And so I started calling off. I knew it was one of the guys in the company. And I told him, I said, you know, I asked him if it was Tom, uh, Jim Horn. And then I asked him if it was Al Lovelace. And I named off guys. And finally, I said, is this Tom Davis? And and, and it, it was the medic. And uh, he's, we started talking. And I, I told him, he remember the night that. Lyle Epke, I was killed. He says, How can I forget? He said he was the first man I ever lost. And um, so now back to the story. Well, wow. when the medic fell on top of me, he was unconscious. But when we were talking on the phone, he didn't know that he was unconscious. And I asked him, I said, do you remember uh, back when you came over to, to help find out who was wounded? Do you remember when you were blown on top of me and you were an unconscious? He says, no. And I says, yeah, you were unconscious. He said, no, I wasn't unconscious. I said, yes, you were. You were just laying on top of me. And I says, do you remember when I shot that, that MDA? And he says, No. He says, Really? I says, Yeah. I shot that guy that threw the satchel charge at you. And he said, Really? He says, I knew you guys always took care of us, you know, because we knew that the medic, if we got hit, if we got injured, the medic was the guy that's going to probably save our life. Right. He, what it was gonna be. he was going to risk his life for us. He says, He says, no, really, I was unconscious. I said, yes, and I shot that guy. And then we went over and we pulled Lyle Lepke out of the foxhole, and he was wounded. And I said, you remember that, don't you? And he says, oh, yeah, I remember that. He said, you remember? And I named the other two guys that were at the position. He says, yeah, I remember that. And uh, I says, well, you you were unconscious for about 10 seconds there. He says, Really? And I said, yep. And uh, and then on my position, there was a man, one of my men was behind me, and I thought he was in a foxhole also, but he was laying on the ground. So when I took, after I shot that man, I took the medic's head, Tom Davis's head, and I pushed it down. And I looked in my lap, and that satchel charge was burning. That fuse was burning, and it was in my lap. You know, my leg was underneath me, and that satchel charge was sitting right there, and it was burning. And I grabbed that satchel charge, and I threw it behind me. And as soon as I released it, it went off, and boom, and I got the big ringing in my ear. You know, if you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Right, yeah. He's on the beach, and his ears are ringing, you know. That's what my ears were doing. I couldn't hear anything, and my ears were ringing, and um, then I shot the medic. But I didn't realize when I threw that satchel charge behind me, that guy behind me, his name is Al Lovelace, um, he was wounded twice that day, and one of them was, as they were throwing the satchel charges at us. So I really think that I threw the satchel charge at him, and he got wounded. And Oh, wow. Patsy and I, uh, probably five years ago, we stopped, four or five years ago, we stopped out of his house, and we were talking about it. And I asked him, you were in a foxhole, weren't you behind me? And he says, no, I was just laying on the ground. And I says, Is that when you got wounded? He said, Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that when I threw that satchel charge behind me that was in my laps, I actually threw it at him and he got wounded. He said that he got shrap metal on his rear end. Um, it wasn't anything serious, but he did get shrap metal on his rear end. Wow. So we went over, we pulled Lyle Lepke out, we took him to the center of the perimeter where the company commander was, and he died. Uh, 11 o'clock that morning. But I, as after we took wow. him to the perimeter I went back to my foxhole and it was just starting to turn daylight. Just barely I could I could see something down below me that was moving and it was a white flash and it reminded me of a white-tailed deer. When a white-tailed deer uh, jumps, before they jump they raise their tail, their tail flashes. You can see the white of their tail. And that reminded me of what the white tailed deer does. I seen something white flashing like that, just in the in gut the, and in the, in the, it was just starting to turn on. And so I knew it wasn't natural, so I shot. I had seven, seven I only shot at that, that guy twice. He fell backwards, so I still had 18 rounds in my gun. And I shot all 18 rounds at that thing that was, that white thing that was flashing. So then later on, I was sitting there in my foxhole, and there was explosions going around. And I was looking out and I I could, as it turned daylight, I could see right in front of me was a, a ravine. It was a ditch. You know? uh, there was two enemy soldiers laying down at the bottom of it. And it was... Two of the zapper squad, two of the guys, wow. one of them was wrapping a bandage around the the arm of the other man. So I shot him in the elbow, and his partner was wrapping a, a bandage around his arm, and that's that white thing that I seen flashing. Oh, so wow. I shot both of them, and they both were moving their head back and forth. And, and so I put a new magazine in my gun, and I shot a 20 rounds into both of them and killed them. And then wow. uh, we started getting mortared, and uh, our company commander called an airstrike. You know, jets came in and dropped bombs, and uh, and then uh, mortars came in, and then uh, we had Cobra gunships working out close to us, shooting the enemy at the enemy, shooting rockets and stuff, and there's all kinds of explosions going around, and then uh they started attacking us and I was looking out in front of me and I seen uh an MDA stand up and he had an RPG on his shoulder rocket-propelled grenade on his shoulder and he stood up and he stepped over a bush as he stepped over I shot him and he fell forward and uh, I couldn't see him he was behind that bush but about 11 o'clock that morning, we we finally pulled out after a battle with the enemy. We started pulling out. And all morning, I could see where he was crawling laterally to me, to the left. He was crawling along that top of that ravine behind the bushes. Uh-huh. And I could see the bushes move. So I'd shoot at the base of the bush. I remember one time I could see... His outline as he was crawling through the ground. I could see him, and so I shot three rounds at him. So I shot probably 40 rounds at him. Finally, before we uh, we moved out that morning, I, I was looking out where I, I thought he was. I, I anticipated I could see as the bushes moving. He was getting farther and farther to my left. But I knew where to look, and I was looking over there, and I seen him sit up. He leaned up against a tree, and he, he moved his head back and forth, and I shot him and killed him. And wow. uh, that day we started moving out as a company, single file, going up a ridge. It was the same thing all over deja vu. The enemy snipers start shooting at us, and we get down, and we maneuver around, and they were harassing us. and went on all day long, and I was starting to get – towards dust this time our company commander made sure we set up our perimeter with plenty of daylight left so we set up on on this bridge line that was a good defensive position and uh, we set up our perimeter and it started raining again just like the night before and we were laying there and I start thinking you know how close I come to dying that day that's Satchel charge was sitting there burning in my lap between my legs. Right. And Andrew, if I would have died, then I would have went straight to hell because I didn't know. God is my savior. I didn't even know if there was a God. And uh, that night, as I was laying in there in the rain, I started thinking about there had to be a God. I know there's a God. God saved me. He gave me another chance in life, and I was going to start serving Him. And I made a typical foxhole conversion. You know, I promised God that if He'd take me, allow me to go back to the States and see my mom again, I promised Him that I would serve Him. It was a foxhole conversion. I didn't really get saved. I didn't ask God to forgive me of my sins that come in my heart and save me and become my Lord and Savior. I didn't ask right. him that. I just asked him to save me. And I but I believed in him. I knew there was a God. And I yeah. I, can, I I I remember that promise I made to him and when I got went back to the States, you know when I got out of the army and I I I by tour of duty, my three years was up. I went back to the States and Joined the Lutheran Church with my mom. I, I wrote and told her about my experience and how close I come to dying. I knew that God had saved me, protected me. That I wanted to go to church when I came home, and she said, "Oh, great! I'll I'll find a church for us to go to." Because the only time we ever we were Lutheran, but the only time we ever went to church was at Christmas and New Year's. You know, we went. We were regular attenders uh-huh. every Christmas, every every. Uh, I, I said New Year's every Easter, every Easter uh-huh. you know, I dress up and go to church. And we were always in church at Christmas time. But that's the only time we ever went to church. And I didn't I didn't know about. I didn't understand about Jesus Christ dying for my sins, dying on the cross. And it wasn't until later that. I was in a Baptist church and I bowed. And I heard the gospel, and went forward an in invitation, and I asked jesus christ to become my lord and savior i knew then amen or die i'd go i'd go to heaven but um, i i survived vietnam you know i went through vietnam and i was in other battles and almost every day we were in battle but I, i was never in another fight like that that day you know i Kill three enemy that day, and I always wondered, you know, would I be able to kill kill a man in cold blood? You know, would I be able to just shoot him? And uh, when the enemy is there, and it's you're you're defending yourself, and you're defending the men with you, um, the men that are with you are just like brothers. You know, you're you're there to to die for each other. Yeah. You're there to save each other. We're there to try to make right. it together. And, uh, we're willing to, to kill if we have to. Um, I hated the, the Vietnamese. You know, I went back to Vietnam in 2018. I went with my, my son, Tom, and we went back to Vietnam. And I got to see the Vietnamese and I was able to pass pass out gospel tracks. Uh, you know, they were chick tracks that I passed. Wow. Out. And uh, the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord. Vietnamese people would would come up to me and they say, Sir, you American? And I'd say yes and they say, Are You fighting in in the American War? You know, we call it the Vietnam War. Well they call it the American War. <laughs> and uh oh. I'd say yes and then they'd stick out their hand, and they'd shake shake it and say, Oh, thank you. My father fought in South Vietnamese war. South 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 Vietnamese army, you know. Uh Oh, my father! My father was Viet Cong. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, my brother, my brother was a soldier in South Vietnamese Army. Um, yeah. And uh, I remember one time specifically, Tom and I went to this vegetable stand and to buy vegetables, and we bought vegetables. Afterwards, Tom said, "Let's let's walk down the street." You know, it was just a regular. Uh, It wasn't a main street, it was a side street. And he said, Let's walk down the street, just see what we see. So we started walking down it. I, I looked down the street and there was this man walking, driving, riding the bicycle coming towards me. And I looked at him and he looked at me and we were looking eye to eye at each other. And he was riding his bike towards me and I was walking towards him. And he got up to me and he walked past me and I said, Hi. And he said, Hi to me. And he rode past me. And then he stopped me. He said, Sir. And I said, Yes. He said, Sir, are you American? And I said, Yes, I am. He said, You, American soldier. I said, Yes. He said, You fighting the American War? And I said, Yes. And he he stuck out his hand and he said, Thank you. My father, a major in the South Vietnamese Army, Uh, he fought side by side by American soldier. American soldier gave his life to save my father's life.
2: Thank you. Wow. Wow. So that was,
1: that made the whole trip to go back. And then uh, I asked Tom after we, we were there for two weeks, and I asked Tom, I said, Tom, what was the highlight of our two weeks in Vietnam? He said, Dad, without a doubt, the highlight of the tour was when we went up, we climbed Hamburger Hill. We got to the top, and you showed me. We lucked out over the Va- Ashaw Valley. We lucked out, and you said, right there is Firebase Ripcord, and over there is Firebase Airborne. And then people came up and shook your hand, and he said, it was like you were 21 years old again. He said, you, you were so alert. It was like you were a soldier, you know, in Vietnam. He said, I was so proud of you, Dad. Wow. He said, thank you for what you did, Dad. I can't imagine. He said, the other thing, I can't, I can't imagine uh, you guys climbing up that mountain with backpacks, you know, 80 to 100 pounds in your back uh, attacking the enemy. And, yeah. Um, you know, he said, I, I've heard about the jungle all my life. You've told me stories about the jungle, how bad it was, and about the triple canopy, you know. You have one growth of trees that go up maybe 60 feet, and you have that canopy. And then 80 feet higher, you have the second canopy. And then 100 feet up, you have the third canopy. Uh, and when you're in a helicopter, you look down, you can't even see the ground. All you see is the treetops, you know. Uh, he says, you told me about the jungle and how thick it was. He said, I didn't realize that until as we were coming up the hill. He said, I I couldn't imagine you having to go through the jungle, yeah. you know, how thick it was. I, yeah,
0: seriously. I, I remember when we were packing out those elk back, I don't know, whatever year that was 2016 or whatever it was. Do you remember that, um, with five, Jeremy, five,
1: four by five, four, uh, two bull elks, right?
0: Two bull elks. Yeah. We were packing those out and I, you know, we each had a hundred pounds on our back, but we had hip straps. And it was you know forty five degrees and uh cool mountain air and I remember looking up at you and you i and I, you did this in the jungle <laughs> yeah. and uh with with no hip straps with worrying about people shooting at you, you're a beast, you all were beasts, all those all you guys doing that, and the guys. You know that do the the more recent wars, but seriously,
1: well, I okay, uh, is, Andrew, you saying that, but it, it makes it all worth it for for men like you, for how many times you've come back to me and told me, you know, you, you always on Veterans Day, you always come and attack me and, and tell me thank you for your service, you know, and you've you've always. Held me in high esteem and, and uh, really showed appreciation to me. And it's for guys like you that I was willing to do that. I, that's the reward of a year in Vietnam was for men like you to be able to do it. Christians like you that are raising godly Christian families. to Honor God and well, bring bring glory to God, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and you... Uh I mean, it's just like, like you said, honor and glory to God and how he, he had to go through all that to get your attention. And, uh, you know, he, he worked that in his sovereign will, uh, obviously, like you said, whether you agree with the war or not, um, you know, you, you felt it your duty and you went and you got, God got your attention and you, you followed through on your foxhole conversion and you sought the lord and you know the bible says draw near to god and he'll draw nigh to you and he revealed himself to you and you you responded um and then you know you had a family of your own and i remember praying for tom uh when tom was was uh excellent i don't know how to say astray you know yeah. whatever and I remember the, the joy of getting to see Tom come, come back to the Lord. And, you know, of course, now he's got a family and. But you didn't stop there. You didn't you you, you shared. What was inside of you with uh, with the guys in the youth group, you know, the you were willing to go share your testimony in the youth group and. Um, you would always include us you know me and daniel Trickstad i remember specifically i know there's other guys and sounds like you're still doing it going out with Johnno, you were telling me before we started recording you're you just went out with John uh who's got uh well see i think he's engaged now and uh but you would have me up me and daniel up to stain your deck or chop firewood you know good good manly stuff and you mentored us and at least I view is mentor and that that's what really it really is you know I just I value that so much because you could have gone through all that and I you know I don't fault guys who don't want to talk about it or anything but they just uh it's not selfish necessarily it's just it's just how much more i I value what's uh what you put into me. I know it took effort and stuff you could have hired anybody to stain your deck and I just appreciate you you uh hiring me and daniel and and being willing to teach us a thing or two and when we were sawing firewood and we were slacking off you'd telling you know make sure you do a good job, you know you've been. <laughs> You've been sitting long enough, you know, giving us a hard time, and and uh, it was good for us. It was good for us. And I think it was, I don't know, but uh, it was probably,
1: probably good for you, too. Um, yeah. And, th- you know, um, the, the, us doing the 14ers, you know, we we didn't. Yeah. They're both 14ers together, you know. I remember coming down, uh, I think it was Columbia, was it Columbia or Harvard. And one of us lost our wallet. Was it you or was it me? When we, <coughs> we were sliding down the rocks, remember? It was it was you, I think. Um on our, our behinds and those our the uh, the rocks were sliding, you know, there were loose rocks scree, and there was, yeah. Yeah, it was scree. And we we're sliding down. And then we we reclim- we we climbed Belford and uh Missouri. Oxford. Oxford Missouri.
0: Yeah. Um where yeah. Yep, I we did several. We tried Shibano. <laughs> I was with you on one of your one of your many attempts to get Shavano. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh no, Belfered, no, was, Oxford. We did Shibano, but we kept on climbing Shavano, except the one time we went the wrong way. The wrong
0: that's route. well that's that's the one I uh I was with you on was when we we were on, <laughs> we were on the wrong mountain. We everything right. we followed the directions to a T and then we got up and there's Shivano yeah. uh half mile horizontal and uh three thousand foot valley between us and that yeah. mountain.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, it's almost uh almost sunset and we got another four or five hours to go you know, or six hours to go to even get there you know yeah some yep. smartly turned around you know
0: absolutely and it, yeah and it was a good trip i mean it was it was a good trip for sure
1: right yeah but it, you know I, I it was all for the glory of god i i i tell the story I talk about my Vietnam experience for the glory of God, not to bring honor to me, but to bring honor to God. You know, like, just like you said, you know, an an unbeliever. You know, I was a typical American GI. You know, I was a carouser and uh, I thought I was, you know, John Wayne. You know, and, and, and um, wanted to chase women. I was bashful and didn't do it. You know, and uh-huh. uh, uh, thought I was the toughest guy in the mountain, you know, and um, pretending like I was. But I can talk about that because what the miracle that God did with me. And, you know, you were talking about mentoring you. Um, praise God. I'm still doing it today. I'm, I'm discipling a young man right now uh, from Ethiopia. His, his name is. Uh, Joseph,
2: then Menden, and um, his brothers. A, his brother's a
1: doctor. He's a uh, plastic surgeon. And there's five brothers. They all live together. And so I, I meet Mondays with Joseph. He's uh, he's playing for the Colorado Springs Switchbacks. He's trying to make it in the professional soccer player. Oh, okay. So he's wow. on. Wow. Uh, he played his last last game uh, Sunday, and uh, hopefully he's going to be picked up by, by one of the professional teams. So we've been meeting on Monday, so I'm I'm, I'm still mentoring. Um, Praise the Lord. And it, it really
0: does give glory to God, brother. I I like Paul said so many times in his in his letter. I thank my God, you know, unceasingly at every remembrance of you. And uh, that's the same type of thing. And I'd say the uh, you know the mentorship is kind of like I just pass it on. And I I hope that I can uh, do that at some point you know with what God's given me the the unique experiences that God's given me I've I've always wanted to do to do for others what you you and others in my life have done for me in the in the terms of mentorship and I'm, I'm getting you know I'm 34 now and I'm getting there where I, it's kind of that time of my life maybe not quite but But uh, at least on some on some scale. But um, in terms of tying this into the liberty, uh, obviously, if you can't extrapolate that out of your testimony, then uh, (laughs) then I think it's fairly obvious. But yes, liberty takes sacrifice and all that. But then beyond that don't keep it to yourself, pass it on to the next generation.
1: Exactly right. You know, as you were just talking now, you remind me of, of Joseph. You know, Joseph was sold by his brothers, you know, uh, sold in slavery, and uh, was, yeah worked in, in Potiphar's house, and then he was thrown in Pharaoh's dungeon, um, and became the advisor of, of Europe the number two man of of Egypt and uh, and then his brothers came to him you know and how he was testing them and uh, to see if they had changed and uh, he could see that they changed and then when he revealed himself to his brothers and they realized who he was they were scared and he said you meant it for for bad things but God meant it for good. Right. Um, what, a, what a tremendous, you know, we, many things in our life that we could we could let them be bad, but God turns them into good. You know, God made me the man that I am. You know, I'm sitting here, Patsy's sitting with me. You know, you know Patsy, and you know how faithful a wife she's been to me. And, uh, you know, like you say, you know, Tom... Tom was, was backslidden and, uh, for a year, a year and a half, and, and yet he met a wonderful wife, and God performed a miracle in his daughter, a real miracle, you know, and she only weighed 12 hours, yeah. and, and uh, you know, just a, a godly family, and, a, you know, Charlotte, she's she still goes knocking on doors and visitation every week, her and Siobhan, you know Siobhan, don't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they go visiting every Saturday, uh, knocking on doors. Um, That's you know, great. The, the visitation pastor at the church. Uh, so I have a, a Filipino man that goes with me. And I'm mentoring him. Uh, you know, he wants to go back to th- the Philippines. Uh, he wants to be a minister, uh, but he's very shy. So he goes on visitation with me, him and his one of his sons there, when they go on visitation, they they bring their whole family. <laughs> on visitation. Oh, wow. So he, I, I let him bring one one son at a time. Um, huh.
0: That's cool. Well, yeah, I know you're doing the. Uh, it'll have to be maybe I don't know, maybe we could have another conversation for the podcast at some time, but I'd I'd love to hear more about the. Some of your experiences doing the sidewalk counseling and with the in front of the abortion centers and stuff. But um, honestly, I'm going to have to wrap it up, though. I was there anything else you wanted to share before
1: um, before we cut it off? No, not at all. You know. I'm, I'm going to be gone next week. Uh I'm going to my brother's. uh bird hunting, pheasant hunting in South, South uh, uh, Kansas uh, next week. But I'll be back afterwards. And uh, if you'd like to, I, I don't know, this was awful long. I don't know how you're going <laughs> to do it.
0: Um, I I think I'll just make it a Veterans Day special, and uh, it'll be a long one, and people can listen to it in chunks. I mean, this is just a normal podcast for... Uh, Joe Rogan. I don't know. I don't listen to Joe Rogan because I can't. I can't take the the uh, language. long. Yeah, well, the language for one, but the the long form podcast because every every podcast of his I think is three hours long. So. Oh my. I can't. I can't hack it. But. Yeah. Every once in a while, someone I listen to will publish a long one and I just listen to it as I can listen to it. That's the breath. That's the nice thing about podcasts. You just pick up where you left off. So, uh, Ron, I, uh, again, uh, Veterans Day is tomorrow. Um, isn't it? Day right, after m- Friday. Day after, day after tomorrow, Saturday. Okay, that's right. Yeah. I know I'd be traveling tomorrow, so we did it today. Well, anyway, I just wanted to, uh, Thank you again for your service. Thank you for taking the time to share with me and and my audience your testimony, your experiences. And uh, I think it's it's valuable. And I think I know it'll be a blessing to someone. And uh, again, I just I just want to give I just want to say it's been an honor getting to sit here, listen to your story again.
1: and. God bless you. Love you, brother. Love you, too. Love your family. Love your parents. Uh, love your wife. Uh, you got a wonderful ca- family. Carry on, you know, for God's glory. Yes, sir.
0: you got a great and grandpa. For, <laughs> yeah, great, grand, great grandpa, too. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, praise God is all i got to say, because, I, I mean, he's he's. Not only is our God good, brother, but our God is good to me. But uh, for all, I'll go ahead and end the in the conversation. And so, for all the the listeners, thanks for sticking with us thus far. And uh, like we said, liberty takes duty. Liberty takes uh, sacrifice, and also liberty takes passing it on to the next generation to be sustainable. So. In the meantime, until next time, be sure and mind your liberty.